this is Monocle Reads. I'm Georgina Godwin. And today I'm bringing you part of a conversation recorded at the Hay Festival recently. I spoke to best-selling psychotherapist Julia Samuel. Her book, Every Family Has a Story, sees Julia turn from her work with individuals to sessions with a wide variety of families. Diving deep into eight case studies, she analyzes a range of common issues including separation, step relationships, leaving home, trauma and loss. She reveals how deeply we are influenced by our families, including the often underappreciated impact of grandparents and siblings. And she offers insights into how families can face challenges together. Her 12 touchstones for family well-being, from fighting productively, making time for rituals and from setting boundaries to allowing difference, provides us with the tools to ultimately be better family members ourselves. Julia, you begin your book, which follows eight different family case studies, by telling us that you came from great privilege, but also multiple traumas. And I just wondered what those were and how you and your family dealt with them and how that then went on to influence your work. Well, just to say it's really lovely to be here. Mm. Yes, yeah, so my um, both of my parents who, who've died now, but they were of the <clears> generation, my dad fought in the Second World War. My mum was a land girl. And by the time they were 25, my mother's father, mother, sister and brother had all died, all died very suddenly and unexpectedly. And my father, his father and his brother had died tragically too, very young. And in my childhood, there were black and white photographs of my aunts and uncles and my grandparents, but there were no stories. I knew absolutely nothing about them. I saw the first photograph of my grandfather on my mother's side last year. But of course, there was massive trauma and loss, but they were of the generation who they had to survive and get on. They didn't have a language of expressing grief. There was no opportunity to really express their grief. So they multiplied. My mum had five children. She did really well on that front. But what it meant was that... I could tell that there were things that were very distressing or upsetting, but I never had a narrative that made sense of it that I could understand. And so I was always observing, trying to read people, reading from their faces, reading from their body language. And, you know, as it turns out, that ferments a therapist because I was always more interested in what people were experiencing and feeling than what they were saying because my parents talked about absolutely nothing that mattered (laughs) and everything that didn't matter. And so it really influenced me. And I, you know, I think that I, I am by no means the only one. And one of the things I've been particularly interested in, so they, of course, were the generation whose parents had fought and survived the First World War. And I think we have under kind of discussed and talked about how the suffering in one generation, when it doesn't get dealt with and expressed and understood, it passes down to the next generation until someone's prepared to feel the pain. And I think, you know, my my parents suffered from their parents' traumas from the First World War. And so one of the reasons I wrote the book was that I really wanted us to stop talking so much about the individual, but to look at the whole family system and to look at the influence of the generations before us. Mm. You know, everybody will grieve differently, and yet there are universal experiences that we have. And I think the, the thing that matters most 
is is love. And, you know, the level of the loss is equal to the level of the love. So there's a story in my book where a child died and it fractured a family because of the way that they responded to it. The, The immense suffering of this child dying meant they lost how to communicate with each other. They didn't know how to stay with it. And through the work that we did, we what we understood was that everybody, how you navigate your loss is uniquely your own. Mm. But the thing that matters most is the love and connection of others. And what's so incredibly painful about loss is that often we push people away because we feel so angry and alone. And then people don't know how to kind of come back towards us. And so it creates these awful chasms. And so I think to normalize that you, what you're feeling is madness, but it doesn't mean that you're mad, and that, but also to pull people towards you. Mm. And in terms of, of that kind of shared, trying to navigate shared grief, as you're saying, we don't always have the same narrative. Everybody's got a different story. Mm. Well, everyone has a very different story and can be furious at somebody else's story. So one of the things I really wanted to look at in the book is, you know, I think we don't look at how a family operates enough together and so I, in my book, I work with five or six people, three and four generations. And what often they would fight about was their version of the truth. You know, dad was like this, we remember this. And so that you can have these battles over truth, over what, you know, who's right and who's wrong. And I think one of the things that having a family therapy system where I... I'm in charge, which is obviously what I like, Um, (laughs) where I can help them recognize that there is as many different stories as there are people in the room, that five of you round the kitchen table eating pasta, when you go and write about it, if nothing terrible happens, we'll still have five different versions, but they will all be legitimate. If you turn the volume of that and it's about the death of someone that you all love, the intensity of what you feel and the importance of holding on to your truth and wanting to clonk everybody else Mm. because somehow they're stealing this dead person from you creates these terrible um, fractures in families. And, you know, what can happen is that those fractures are not mended, you know, that you can have this fracture and heartbreak from a devastating loss that then makes the devastating loss so much worse because of how they've managed it together. We don't want to talk about it, do we? I think it brings fear. Mm. I think it brings up our own mortality. And I think there's this kind of magical thinking that if I let myself know that I can die or somebody I love can die, then somehow it will make Mm. it happen. And I do also think, particularly with sort of technology and medicine, that there's this sense of failure that, so when somebody dies, you know, guilt is the most painful, companion of grief where you know what if if only why didn't I if I had all that terrible excoriating sort of self attack that people have in some way believing that they've had control over something they've had absolutely no control over and then that does bring a lot of shame and you know this awful kind of self-attack and that's one of the cruelest aspects of grief I think but can you prepare yourself I think two things. One is at some level, you can never be prepared for that moment of death, even though someone may be dying for weeks and they finally die. That actual moment is always a shock. 
but you can certainly protect yourself from lots of regrets and difficulties by having important conversations, talking to the people who are most significant to you about their dying, what they believe, what they fear. Do they want to be on a, a life support machine? Do they want to be cremated or buried? I mean, I keep sending all my children my passwords because, and they're like, Mom! <laughs> no. but you know I've worked with many families where they didn't have the passwords and that's agony not getting into your mother or father's um, laptop or whatever so I think I think what is much more frightening than facing the reality of death is our imagination which is limitless and um, for children it's really frightening because children ha actually have magical thinking so if they're not you know, often we want to protect children by not telling them the truth, by saying they've gone to heaven or they've, you know, they've, they've gone to sleep. Well, heaven could be a hamburger joint. They're meant to go to sleep every night and find people again. So you, with children, you have to tell them the truth that, you know, your grandmother has died when she's dead. Her body doesn't work anymore. If you touch her, she's cold. So that they begin to understand the reality of that because otherwise they can think, well, I was horrible to grandma and that's probably why she's died mm. and they can blame themselves and that can influence them for decades. Mm. So I would encourage you to have conversations mm. about your death and, and the death of people that are significant to you so that when it happens, which it will, you have enough information that you feel able to make decisions that feel like informed decisions. I wonder if you could tell us about inherited shame and inherited trauma. Perhaps start by explaining the, the science of epigenetics. So epigenetics is a, when our genes are switched on or off from a very heightened response in the pregnant mother. So in one of the case studies is a five-generation Berger family who are ultra-Orthodox Jews. And Katty, the great-grandmother, is 92 and she was in Auschwitz for two years, did the death march and survived. And I expected to see transgenerational trauma because the science of it is that if you are in a heightened state of trauma when you're pregnant, your cortisol levels are very high and they are inherited by your child. So the child is born with a heightened sensitivity to danger. So we all have a negative bias for evolutionary reasons that we look for danger anyway. But if you're born with this elevated cortisol levels, often you can't understand why you're so sensitive. What's wrong with me? Why, when you know I hear a, a horn, do I, you know, do I get sort of hypervigilant? And that the research shows it can go for three generations. So I've just been in Amsterdam, and there was a hunger, there was a, a famine in 1944 because of the war, and the research that they did showed that the women that were pregnant in that year of the famine, those children had higher rates of obesity, died 10 years earlier, had higher coronary deaths, and had complicated relationship with food. So, you know, some people still argue against epigenetics. I can see it. But the other way that behaviors and patterns get passed down, so you can get it through genetics, but you also get it from observing the adults around you. So all of you will know that your 
the defenses, the ways that you cope with life, the belief systems, your kind of template for attachment of love is learned from your family of origin and that you carry that with you. You can choose to change it, but we learn most by observing our parents. It's not what they say, it's what they do. And so if you're in a family who, for instance, like the Burgers, had a very heightened relationship to food because of the Holocaust, you pick up that food is something that is is both full of emotion and full of threat. And so that your relationship with food isn't just that there's plenty, it's that there's scarcity and that you have to eat a huge amount or hide food or, you know, binge on it. And that that pattern you inherit. And in the same way, you can inherit patterns of how you deal with grief and loss mm. that you, you know, you do it, you observe the parents who may be self-medicating and then you find that you're self-medicating. It's not just death, of course. That's not just the only time we experience trauma. You were talking about bringing your elder two children up as, as a single mother. And of course, that whole shift going into a, into a step family, I mean, that's something that you, you pick up on. You, one of your case studies is that why is that sort of classed on, a, on the same sort of level of, of trauma? I don't know that. I mean, I think that how endings happen. So what I talk about is that there's there's a loss from death and then there's living losses from kind of life events, which is divorce, moving home, moving country, you know, breaking up with a boyfriend, many different ways of having living losses. With this Taylor Smith family, it was traumatic because the way they broke up was with such hate. You know, and hate's a heavy burden to carry. And it's a heavy burden for children to witness between their two parents. And they had no way of knowing how to argue effectively and how to come to agreements despite differences. So one of the things I talk about in the book is learning how to fight productively, that you can actually have disagreements and have fights, but in the end you can get to know each other and come to terms with your differences if you find a way of communicating effectively. The only way they knew how to fight was to try and knock each other out. And then of course, you're both left on the floor with nothing and the children suffer. So all the research about separation shows that children don't suffer because couples separate, they suffer when, when there's masses of conflict. And so I worked with the separated mother and father and their son, Ashley, and he was, you know, I really think young people, I have so much hope for young people now because he was the one that said to them, I am done. You two have got to sort this out. And when they were fighting on the screen, he put his head down on the laptop and he, did, he had a little hoodie on and he just looked up and he was like, oh God, there they go. And they, for the first time, could see that what they were doing, how was it affecting him? And so then I could use that to work with them to begin to find different ways of communicating. And there's this thing with separated families I don't know if you know, it's called loyalty binds. That if you're a child, when you're put between the two families, so if you're in the family of the father and the stepmother, the, the child feels guilty about his mother that he's left behind. And if he's with the mother, he feels guilty about his father. And so what you don't want is exacerbate that. Mm. And so how you communicate that with each other and how you can share and how you do that makes an enormous difference to the intensity of that split feeling that the child, the child has. Maybe it would be quite helpful for you to just dip into your 12 touchstones. 
So I did a, a sort of set of 12 touchstones for the well-being of family. And this isn't about having perfect families. Families work on a spectrum of function and dysfunction depending on what's happening. But I did them as an idea of if you feel like you're tipping towards the dysfunctional end, you could look at these touchstones to see what you think is going wrong. And so one of them is to fight productively. The other is the quality of the communication. The other is collaborative power, who holds power in the family. The other one is to have fun. I think, you know, we need to have fun, more fun, kind of program it to have fun because that releases a lot of tension. We need rituals because rituals got very stabilizing. They're like habits with soul. We need ways of organizing how we're going to be as a family and communicating as a family. So that's some of them. Oh, one of the things is if you have, you, if you're kind of looking through the portal, you need to have five more positive interactions than negative. And it's not like counting, but if you think I've been nothing but a cow for the last two days saying, clear up your socks, empty the dishwasher, you know, why are you late? You know, if you've been doing that a lot more than saying, well done for doing your homework or giving you a hug, then that's probably why he's scratching. Mm -hmm. An audience member asked about trauma concerning lost friendships and if that could have as much impact as a family loss. You know, I think friendship as well as family can be made and broken on trauma because how that individual responds, you're, you're the one who's experienced the trauma, but how the friend or the family member responds to you will be impacted by their experience of trauma themselves. And so they may not be able to meet you where you're at. And they, you become, you know, emotions are contagious and we're very frightened of very heightened traumatic emotions. And so the person who's your friend who you thought you could trust and rely on, it probably triggered something in them that they had to scarper. And that is incredibly painful. And also, you want to frigging kill them for not being the friend that you thought they were. And then you're the one that's suffering, and then you're suffering more because they haven't been the friend that you want them to be. And you don't want to waste your energy on that, but it takes up a lot of space in your head. Many thanks to my guest, Julia Samuel. Her book, Every Family Has a Story, is published by Penguin. Thanks also to Hay Festival, where this event was recorded. You've been listening to Monocle Reads, produced by Nora Hall, with editing assistance from Jack Dewars and research by Lillian Fawcett. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.